please turn in your Bibles to, to John 16. So everybody in here is probably familiar with the phrase, the good old days, right? The good old days. Usually, we think of the good old days in terms of a time in U.S. history when life was simpler, when things were cheaper, and manners and values were better. It, it almost always means a time before the 1960s. Um, when I was a kid, there was this popcorn called Orville, Orville Hay. Oh, oh, okay, thank you. I appreciate that. I want to say something witty, and I don't have anything. I'm going to move on, because that's probably too much question. Anyway, so, so when I was a kid, there was this popcorn called Orville Redenbacher. Remember that, Orville Redenbacher's popcorn? And What? Oh, is it still around? I don't get out much. So I actually had a picture of Orville for the slides in case we had slides, but we don't have slides today. But, but the whole appeal of the popcorn, from what I could tell, was that you had an elderly man who looked like he was probably born in the 1920s. And somehow, because he was selling you this popcorn with his bow tie and his spectacles and his graying hair, it was trustworthy because it was from a man who was part of the good old days. Of course, you can ask any elderly African-American, maybe especially someone from the Deep South. It doesn't have to be that, but ask them about the good old days, and you might hear about some really bad problems in the good old days. But it's still, it's a typical phrase that connotes this idea that anything that happened before was better than what is happening now. Do, do you guys ever read the New Testament with a kind of good old days attitude? What I mean is, is do you ever read it and think, man... It would have been so great if I could have just have been alive when Jesus was in town, in the flesh. I mean, just to, to, I do, right? I just, just to imagine being alive then. Imagine seeing him turn a few fish and a few bread loaves into 4,000 in a few seconds on a hot afternoon in, in the countryside. Or hear him yell from across the shore. You know, you're on the beach and you're watching this boat. You're not sure it's going to make it in this raging storm. And all of a sudden you hear this, be still. And everything just turns calm. And the clouds are still. I, imagine standing outside the tomb of Lazarus. The, the drama, the tension. There he is. Lazarus come out. And this dead man comes out in burial clothes. What if I told you that if you had to choose between living then and living now, you should choose living now? Would you believe me? Would, would you think that was just me selling you something? What if Jesus told you that? What if Jesus said, no, it's, it's better that you're, you're alive now than when I was walking the earth. Better than if you were even watching me do these miracles. I think Jesus is going to say that to us this morning. And, and the reason for that, I think, is really, really important. And that, that we really have to see with fresh eyes. And that is because we live in a special age in the history of God's saving plan for humanity that some theologians call the age of the Spirit. The age of the Holy Spirit. It is the age after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, and it began on the day of Pentecost. Recorded in the book of Acts, when Jesus, from the Father's right hand, sent the Holy Spirit into the world in a new way to stay that he had never been manifest before. What sets apart this age 
from the time that Jesus was on earth is that this Holy Spirit now permanently indwells and transforms his people. And he also works in the hearts of the people of the world who aren't his followers to make them his followers in a way that he has never done before in the history of God's earth. Hopefully what we'll learn today about this age, what Jesus will tell us through his word, will help us to treasure all that he did to bring us into this age of the spirit and to help us be more eager to make the most of all he has secured for us in the Holy Spirit. It it really is a prayer in my heart that he would just open up our eyes to what's right in front of us all the time, but that we're familiar with. And that we, because we're familiar with it, and because of indwelling sin, we can become numb to it. We can become blind to the treasure that it is. We can become blind to the opportunity we have to develop our relationship with God stronger through this Holy Spirit who marks this new age. We can become blind to the opportunities and the call that he has on our lives because of what he does in the world, not only in us, but through us and around us because we're in the age of the Holy Spirit and it is a new age. So before we read our text this morning, I just want to ask us to pray that God would help us to see. Lord, we come to you as people, I believe it's appropriate to say, people of the new covenant, the ministry of the spirit, not the old covenant, not the ministry of the law, not not in the age of commandments that we couldn't obey, that only convicted us of sin. But we live in an age when by your spirit's power, living in us forever, we can obey. We can see. We can make progress in ways that we couldn't before. Lord, help us to see this. Help us to treasure this. Help us to believe it and believe and receive more of all that you have for us in the power of the Holy Spirit. Help me, God, to honor your word. Help me to be careful. Help me to care more about honoring you and blessing people than any other motives that might be in my heart this morning. Protect your people from error. Uphold your people in truth. Have mercy on me, a sinner, to bring to your people good food this morning and give our hearts, Lord, a softness to receive it from you either through what I say or around and despite what I say. Bless your people. In the name and the power and the character of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So let's talk context before our big passage. Remember where we are the night before Jesus' crucifixion. We've been in this place for a few months now. Um, It's still exciting to me. I hope... I hope you're not bored by the Bible yet. Just kidding. But Andrew brought this word to us two weeks ago. Jesus had just told his disciples, they're going to be hated. They're going to be persecuted. They're even going to be killed for the gospel. 
But in that passage, Jesus makes this promise. And, and this promise is not in our passage, but it sets up our passage today so well. I want us to hear this. This is what Jesus says right before our passage today in John 15, 26 and 27. Listen carefully to what he says. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So I want us to hear our our passage, which we haven't gotten to yet, with this backdrop in mind. The world will hate the disciples and persecute them. But they are to bear witness for Jesus to the world. Because they have been with him from the beginning of his ministry on earth. And to help them do this, God is going to send these disciples who have been with Jesus all the three years of his ministry, the Holy Spirit, who will also bear witness to Jesus in the world. Now, there's lots of application for us, but at the outset, we have to be careful to respect the, the immediate context of this passage. This is to these 12 guys in this room. Now, now it's 11. And when we include Paul later, I believe it'll be 12 again. For Paul the Apostle will come as one untimely born, he says. He will be added to the 12 to complete what Judas had left. But it's in this context of persecution, of mission to the world, that Jesus makes the promises that we will now hear. And this is our text this morning, John 16, 5 through 15. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. You will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the word of the Lord. So it will shock everybody to to learn that this morning I have three headings. Uh, 
three blandy kind of sounding headings, but what what you guys are too close to say stuff and not like rattle me and get me all excited about what you say. What what does that mean? Here are the three headings. The Holy Spirit is an advantage. You can say it with that inflection. The Holy Spirit is an advantage because then it sounds more exciting. Number two, the work of the Spirit in the world. The work of the Spirit in the world. <clears throat> Number three, the Spirit glorifies Jesus. The Spirit glorifies Jesus. So number one, the Holy Spirit is an advantage. And we talked about this in the opening. And my bold contention is this. It's not just mine. It's D.A. Carson's and R.C. Sproul's. But I thought of it before then. They just confirmed it when I read them. But, but, but it's this kind of, got to take this the right way, but true statement, I believe. The age of the Spirit, to be alive during the age of the Spirit, is better, more advantageous than to be alive during the days of Jesus on earth walking. We go back to verses 5 through 7. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So Jesus makes the startling claim, I'm leaving, but it's better for you that I go. The NIV respectably translates this phrase, it's good for you if I go. And that word other, other places has been translated, it's better for you <clears throat> if I go. What could be good about this? And I, I think it's simply this. The church is far better off with an indwelling spirit who changes us from the inside, who walks with us every moment, everywhere, than if we lived in the days of Jesus without the indwelling spirit. Listen to John 7, 37 with me. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this, he says about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified, had not yet died, risen, and ascended to the, God, to the Father's right hand. See, in the plan of God, Jesus must make atonement for the sins of the world in order for the Holy Spirit to be unleashed on the world. The crucified, risen Jesus must be at the Father's right hand as your righteousness, as your advocate before the Father in order for the Holy Spirit to find a home in your heart and to permanently live in you in this age of redemptive history. In order for the Spirit of Jesus to live in you forever, be with you forever, help you in every situation, which is what his purpose is on this earth, the physical person of Jesus, who was always located in one place at one time, had to leave the earth and had to show the Father his completed work. I had to show, these are kind of nuancy things, but this is the way the Bible speaks about these things. Do you remember Peter before the Spirit was poured out? 
in Pentecost? Do you remember Jesus, I'm sorry, do you remember Peter before the age of the Spirit, in other words? Do you remember what he was like? Right? It's legend. He's arguing with the disciples about who is the greatest disciple. He's telling Jesus, I'll never, never, ever deny you. And then that same morning, three times he denies Jesus before a servant girl. Do you remember just after Pentecost, just after the Spirit came, just after the age of the Spirit began? Do you remember that day, Peter boldly proclaiming the gospel? And the following days, he's boldly proclaiming Jesus before the very same man who had had Jesus killed. And when he was commanded to stop preaching, he said, we must obey God and not men. Game on. Put me in prison. I'm not, I'm not going back. While Jesus was alive, do you remember him feeding thousands, thousands of people? And just afterwards confronting them with this truth, this sad truth. They only wanted his bread. They didn't want him. You remember many disciples leaving him after that very miracle. So many that, that he said to the twelve, you don't want to leave too, do you? I've chosen you, the twelve. It's as if he, he had a crowd of disciples. And after a few difficult words, he had 12 left. Well, do you recall what happened the very day the Holy Spirit was poured out on Pentecost? In the same city where Jesus had been rejected and crucified after three years of miracles, the likes of which no one had ever seen, in that same city, in one day, 3,000 people were saved as a result of, of one speech of Peter's. Listen, Jesus did many amazing miracles when he was on the earth in the flesh. But I believe the Lord would say he never did a miracle as amazing as he did that day through Peter. During his three years of ministry. Does that sound crazy? Does that sound scandalous? If it does, we misunderstand the nature of the spirit's power and his mission in the world. The Spirit can do miracles. God is not against amazing things. Those things are to draw people to new life in Jesus Christ. That is the great miracle. That's why I believe Jesus said in John 14 to his disciples, you will do even greater things than I've done. I don't think he was saying you're going to calm 70 more storms than I have. I think he was saying... Through my spirit in you, this church will convert millions of people. And not just 12, not just 120 in an upper room, cowering in fear. D.A. Carson writes this, Jesus' valuation of what is good for his disciples, indeed what is good for us, it ought to temper our longings of, Oh, if only I could have been in Galilee when Jesus was there. That same Jesus insists it is better to be alive now after the coming of the Spirit. And, and listen to this. This is really, really brilliant and, and right on, I believe. Before the triumphant inbreaking of God's saving reign, meaning before the Spirit came, before the inauguration of the new covenant, millions ignored the claims of the true God. 
Pentecost, when the Spirit was poured out, transformed that limitation. And millions have been brought to happy submission to the Lord Jesus Christ and to grow in obedience by the power of the Spirit whom he bequeathed. What the world needs more than flashy miracles that I don't, when I say flashy, I don't mean to be pejorative. But what the, what the world needs more than dramatic miracles, which God does and gives in his grace, what the world needs more than that is the miracle of faith that endures, repentance that continues, that miracle that can only come from new hearts. Hearts of stone turning to hearts of flesh. Every miracle Jesus performed had that inner miracle of new life in view. That is the work, the major work, I believe the main work of the Holy Spirit of God. If you were born again, this is one of these things I, I just want to be fresh to us. If you are born again, if you believe Jesus is the Son of God who laid down his life for your sins and you seek to follow him, you have undergone a far greater miracle than walking on water. Your life has been moved from a life of death, of deadness to God, to being alive to God for eternity. Your life has been transformed by the Holy Spirit. And he could only come to you because Jesus offered himself and offers himself in heaven as your righteousness. From the day you were saved until this very moment and for all eternity. So, church, let's, let's freshly affirm and stand on the truth that the Holy Spirit is ours. Let's treasure the miracle that he is. Let's pray for healings. We need to talk. I'm hoping we're going to talk more about this in the fall, the Holy Spirit's work. Let's pray for healings. Let's pray for prophetic gifts. Those of you who enjoy the gift of tongues, keep enjoying them. But remember, it all points to Jesus. It's all to sustain us in Jesus. Let's treasure the greatest work of the Holy Spirit. Let's keep walking and believing in that, that we have new hearts because of him, that we can obey God because of him, that we can cry out to God through him and receive help. Let's make use, if I could put it in that way, of the Holy Spirit who lives in us to not only make us new, but to keep us growing in Jesus Christ. And this brings me to my next test, the work of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit. Verses 8 through 11. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Do you know what one of my funnest moments of preparing for this passage today, it was, it was reading R.C. Sproul talk about this section of our passage today. And he said something so profound. He said, I don't know what this means. <laughs> I 
and I really wish I did. You know, he says that. He's like, he just wrote, I, I really don't know what this means, but I wish I did because I've, you know, I've been studying this for a long time. This is one of the most apparently contested passages in the scripture, but I think I got it. So, listen, come on. It's about him, not, you know, how bad a student I was. Um, I probably went bad in high school. After high school, I got a lot better. Dad, I got better early. Okay, so... So anyway, but I want you to notice something really cool. And if you don't have your Bibles, I wish you did, but try to listen up, okay? Um, this little Columbo moment for me, these little little things. Notice that Jesus says in, back in verse 7 of 16, he says, he will come to you. And now in verse 8, right away, he says, he will convict the world. What, is he going to come to the disciples? Because they're always different. The world is always those outside of Christ. You, the disciples, are those in Christ. And why does he put it right next to each other? He will come to you, and he will convict the world. And I think that is because central to the Spirit's coming to be inside the disciples is to help them in their mission outside of themselves, into the world. Because it doesn't matter how much preaching the disciples do if hearts stay stone cold against what is being preached. Have you ever heard the story of the stewardess who went up and down the aisle of the airplane saying everything was fine, but asking if anyone wanted a parachute? Everything's fine, really, but do you want a parachute? Everyone looked at her like she was crazy. And then the captain announced that the plane was going down into the ocean, and she had a very different reception. Suddenly, everyone thought she was really important. She was much more respected individual in that airplane. The Holy Spirit will come to the world and help them receive the message of the gospel by helping them see they need the gospel. They need that parachute. It's not just craziness. Without that Holy Spirit work, the gospel is foolishness to them. It is craziness. It doesn't make any sense. They don't want it. So the Holy Spirit isn't just coming into the disciples. He is going to go into the world and work on those who are not yet disciples. And what will he do? He will convict them because of their sin. And Jesus says, because they do not believe in me. Three years I was on this earth, rejected, 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 rejected. Everywhere I went, there needs to be an inner transformation. Because people reject the message of Jesus. They need to believe it. The Holy Spirit has to do something inward that didn't happen when the gospel was preached by Jesus. It's so many souls. He will convict the world of righteousness. Listen, this is beautiful. Because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. What does John say in his letter later about Jesus going to the Father? He says, if anyone sins... Remember, Jesus is going to convict them of sin. The Holy Spirit's going to convict them of sin. And now it's righteousness. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Is he here? No, he's with the Father. And who is he? He's Jesus Christ the righteous. When you and I sin, we have someone up in heaven with the Father advocating for us as our righteousness before the Father. And so he convinces the world they need this righteousness. Jesus says, because I go to the Father. 
they're going to have that righteousness. That's what I think that means. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is cast out. Colossians 2 says that when Jesus died on Calvary, there was a spiritual trial that ended in the triumph of God over Satan. That in a spiritual but public sense, Colossians 2 says, Jesus' death did something to Satan and his fellow demonic forces. He made a public spectacle of them like prisoners in the line of the victory parade, triumphing over them by the cross. So when Jesus says that he's convicted the world about judgment because the ruler of this world is judged, I believe what he's saying is the ruler of this world has been judged in my cross. And that is a foretaste of the fuller judgment that will come upon the ruler of this world and all of those who follow the ruler of this world. The Holy Spirit convinces us that we're sinners. He, he convicts us that there's an answer in Jesus, and he convinces us that we need that answer in Jesus. I remember when I was, I think, 20 years old, and I had a friend who was trying to lead me to Christ. He was talking to me about Jesus and grace, and I was reading mere Christianity, and I was loving what I was learning. But it, I just, it just wasn't mine yet. You know, I, I felt like, if I could put it in these terms, I was being courted by the Lord. It was a beautiful season of my life, but I was still in the world. I was still giving myself over to all the things I had grown up giving myself over to. And one night I had a dreadful dream that was life-changing for me, I believe. I had the, it was the craziest dream. I was walking on the beach. It was night. I was with two family members. I don't know who they were in you know, my mind or relatives. I was looking up at a beautiful moon. I could still see the dream as if it was clear as day right now. It was a very real dream. It wasn't, you know, in dreams like you're like married to goats and then you're, you turn into a fish and then you, you're, you know, Elton John at a concert. I mean, just dreams go everywhere. This one was very linear, very literal, very clear. I looked up at the moon, this white, beautiful, bold, full moon with no trepidation. And suddenly, flowing across the surface of the moon was blood. Blood red. It's kind of creepy, isn't it? Revelation talks about, I think Joel talks about the moon turning red on the day of the Lord, the day of judgment. I woke up and I couldn't move for 30 seconds. I knew what it meant in my dream. I, I, I wasn't, didn't go to seminary, but I knew what it meant. It meant that judgment was coming. And in that moment, I was, I was being judged. It was too late. And I felt in the dream this crushing weight of eternity on my soul. That I was not friend of the Lord. I was an enemy of God and I was going to be judged with an eternal weight crushing me. I couldn't escape. I think I was 20 years old when I finally woke up from that dream. I went in my parents' bedroom and got in bed with them <laughs> and slept for the rest of my, you know, night in that dream. Now, you don't all have to have a dream, you know. That's, 
I'm not trying to, to, to tell you this has got to be part of your conversion process. What I am saying is that God convicts the world that there is a judgment coming. And he does that because he loves the world. And he wants the world to turn to them. He can use his word. We've heard, many of us have heard stories about him using green, especially in the Mideast. In my life, that was a powerful, powerful help to me to realize I need to fear the Lord. And it wasn't long after that that I, I believe I came to the Lord. The Holy Spirit has a job to do that we can't. He exposes people to their sin, to their need for righteousness, and to a judgment that's sure to come. But listen, he does this as we go to people. He doesn't bypass us. That's, what, that's why Jesus is talking to his disciples about this. It's, it's their mission. And as they do their mission, as they talk about Jesus and the judgment to come and the sin, he is going to work through that in the hearts of people. Just like he worked in the conversation I was having with my friend this morning. So this is a huge application for us. If we read this, this passage in its, in its proper context, it's, it's largely about mission. It's largely about going into the world and spreading the message of Jesus. He was speaking to the disciples about this. But do you know what? I don't know if you guys know this. The disciples are dead. <laughs> They're gone. They're not here to do this anymore. We're what's left. We have all that they saw, all that they wrote, so that we can keep that mission going. Peter's not here right now. He's not going to do the mission for us. We can't outsource it to an apostolic team. And I don't mean any offense. But the mission is ours. We have to learn how to engage it. Last point, three. The Spirit glorifies Jesus. Verses 12 through 15. I still have many things to say to you. Oh, this is beautiful. Listen to this. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Holy Spirit, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has, all that the Father has is Mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. What I, what I love initially about this passage, if, if you guys can see this in your Bibles or on your phones, is, is do you see the, the Trinity working here? Do you see the Trinitarian nature of this amazing passage? Essentially, I think this passage could be summed up this way. Jesus says, guys, you cannot handle all I have to say to you, all that I want to say to you. You can't bear it. Tonight, you can't believe it. Emotionally, you can't accept it. Cerebrally, you can't process it. But I still need to tell you a lot. I have a lot left to say to you. I'm going to tell you that. The Spirit will. He will tell you about me. What He tells you about me is from the Father. I'm going to tell you a lot. The Spirit's going to tell you. 
What he tells you is from the Father. It's just beautiful. There's no apologies. (laughs) This is who I am. One of my favorite things about this upper room discourse is you get to see the Trinity at work in a way I, I don't see it anywhere else in the Bible. The intimacy, the inner workings, the truth of it. It's unapologetic. It's just beautiful to be able to behold it. I mean, there's, there's a sense in which I just want to worship that. You know, application point. I just said all that stuff. I just want to say, wow, behold him. The triune God. He is exactly who he says he is. But this passage also tells us something amazing. Remember that I said the context is Jesus is speaking to these disciples. There is application for us. We experience many of these same things, but I don't believe completely in the same degree. This passage, I believe, is telling us how we have our Bibles. This passage is telling us how 2,000 years later, you sit in this room finding power from the written Word of God. How 2,000 years later, your lives are sustained by the written Word of God. How 2,000 years later, you find yourself reading the Word of God and just believing it's God's Word. It's the voice of God. And this passage tells us what the Spirit is most passionate about. As we said before, the Spirit is not primarily interested in gifts for their own sake or experiences for their own sake. He's interested in bringing people and bringing glory to Jesus. And he continues Jesus' work. Revealing him so that Jesus' salvation may be available to all and sustained by all. May be available to all and sustained in all. You know, sometimes there can be these undercurrents in churches of this kind of, it's, it's never explicit because that would get kind of heretical. But there can be this undercurrent of a, of a functional division between this focus on Jesus And this focus on the Holy Spirit. It's like, I'm in the Jesus camp, you know, and I'm in the Holy Spirit camp. And nobody would ever say that or wear t-shirts like, what was that movie? Or that Team Edward and Team something. Team Jesus, Team Holy Spirit. I never saw those movies. (laughs) Okay? Because I'm just too good for that. And I can't touch them. What were they called? Forbidden or, or, or Twilight? Okay. I heard they were terrible. Okay, so this passage tells us that the passion of the Spirit, that the heart of the Spirit is to make Jesus known. Not to make, simply make dramatic manifestations of His presence for their own sake, but that at His heart is making Jesus understood, loved, cherished. And in doing so, he is revealing the Father. Because Jesus said, Thomas, how can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me doing his work? How can you say, show us the Father? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. 
And so we need the Holy Spirit to reveal Jesus to us. And, and that's, what, that's what this last section is about. He explains Jesus to us over our whole lives. Spurgeon writes, There are times when all the precious promises and doctrines of the Bible are of no avail. Unless a gracious hand shall apply them to us. We are thirsty, but we are too faint to crawl to the water brook. When a soldier is wounded in battle, it is of little use for him to know that there are those at the hospital who can bind up his wounds and medicines there to ease all the pains which he now suffers. What he needs is to be carried and to have the remedies applied. It is thus with our souls. And to meet this need, there is one, even the Spirit of truth, who takes the things of Jesus and applies them to us. Think not that Christ has placed his joys on heavenly shelves, that, that we may climb up to them for ourselves. But he draws near and sheds his peace abroad in our hearts. O oh, Christian, if you are laboring under deep distresses, your Father does not give you promises and then leave you to draw them up from the Word like buckets from a well. But the promises He has written in the Word, He will write anew on your heart. He will manifest His love to you. And by His blessed Spirit, dispel your cares and troubles. Be it known unto thee, O mourner, that it is God's prerogative to wipe every tear from the eye of his people. The good Samaritan did not say, here's the wine and here's the oil for you. He, he actually poured in the oil and the wine. So Jesus not only gives you the sweet wine of promise, but holds the golden chalice to your lips and pours the lifeblood into your mouth. The poor, the sick, the wayworn pilgrim is not merely strengthened to walk, but he is born on eagle's wings. Here is as much glory in the giving as in the gift. Happy people who have the Holy Ghost to bring Jesus to them. When Jesus was on earth, he was available wherever people were near him. In one town, in one house, in one city. What Jesus wants us to believe anew today is that he is available to all of us. Today, this moment, for this trial, for this weakness, for this sin, that his power is available to us. That his strength is available to us for this lost one. For this hopeless relative. That he may yet work, if he wills, he may yet work new life in a heart that has been dead for decades. Because that's what he does. That's what he came to do. That's what he sent the Spirit to do. Let's pray for more of the Spirit for ourselves and for the lost around us. Let's pray together.